She was a wonder to behold. She stood 882 feet long, 92 and a half feet at the girth, 175 feet high, the largest man-made vessel of that day in the world. She was titanic, means giant. She was indeed a giant. Took two and a half years to build her in Belfast, Ireland. Over a thousand men working on her repeatedly for two and a half years before she finally set sail on April 10th, 1912. Gorgeous on the inside. Mahogany staircases in the first class. Carpeting so thick you had to wade through it. Gilded chandeliers. Mother of pearl marble. They feasted on poached salmon and Angus beef and lobster and prawn and all manner of things in first class. If you wanted to ride first class, 60,000 bucks for a one-way ticket from Southampton, England to New York City. She could accommodate 3,300, but on that fateful day that she took off from Southampton, 2,240. When she finally took off, there were passengers on board, all the glitterati of that time. People like John J. Astor, after whom the Astoria Waldorf, Waldorf Astoria Hotel is named worth in today's dollars about 2.6 billion. And then there was Isidore Strauss, together with his brother, co-owner of the Macy's chain. Started the Macy's Thanksgiving parade. Isidore Strauss, worth over a billion. And then there was Benjamin Guggenheim. Benjamin was the playboy of the Western world who had inherited a lot of money in the mining industry, again, over a billion dollars. And finally, there was the unsinkable Molly Brown, an heiress who was worth a fortune, gained her reputation by going back to save those that were stranded in the Atlantic. So you had a lot of famous people, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of the uh, elite of that day that wanted to be the first to ride on her on her maiden voyage. She was high-tech in terms of safety. She had 15 lifeboats, four inflatables. She had 15 uh, electromagnetically controlled watertight compartments that at the push of a button, they could lower all 15 doors and seal up in case the hull was punctured. And so they set off 
In fact, it was so secure that one of the London newspapers declared even God couldn't sink the Titanic. Mm, not wise to shake your finger at God. You need God's protection. You need God's protection if you're on board the Titanic. And you and I need God's protection every single day. Join me, Psalm 91. Let's read about God's protection and see what he has to say. In the essence of time, I'm just going to read these and then we'll exposit them as we're going through them. This is Psalm 91. I have it on page 480 if you're using one of these Bibles that's in the seats in front of you. Otherwise, I'm sure you'll find it on your electronic devices. Psalm 91. Here's the first couple of verses. Whom does God protect? Does he protect everybody? Saints and sinners, or does he protect others? Well, let's see. Whom does God protect? Psalm 91, 1 and 2 says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. By the way, that last phrase in verse 2 gives us our national motto, doesn't it? Our national motto, in God we trust, was drawn from Psalm 91, verse 2. Well, let's start. Whom does God protect? It says from verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Who are the dwellers? Because it's the dwellers that God protects. So what does it mean to be a dweller? Well, I did some looking at it. It gives you terms that you still don't understand. If you abide, <laughs> you know, you're an abider. Okay, what does that mean? Um, but a dweller, dear as I can tell, is somebody who takes up permanent residence and you're at home. You're not a guest. You're not a visitor. You're not a stranger. You're at home. You're at home in the Lord. That's what a dweller is, somebody that's at home. You're not just a temporary resident who's coming and going. This is your home. That's who a dweller is. What do we know about dwellers? Look what it says. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. To be able to rest is part of what it means to be a dweller. And then verse 2. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Three my's, because they own, they own him. God is the one in whom they're dwelling. God is their refuge. God is their fortress. And they trust him, my God in whom I trust. They're relying on him by faith. And they're dwelling in him. He is their God. They're at home in him. They feel very comfortable in him. Arcing down to verse 9. Take a look at it. It looks pretty similar. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, if, it's a little word, but it has big meaning, doesn't it? If, in other words, not everybody 
gets the protection of the Lord. Only those who dwell, only those who dwell in him. If you dwell in him, he will protect you. He will protect your dwelling. Arcing down a little bit farther, down to verse 14. Look what it says there. This is God's estimation of who the dwellers are. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I'll protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Talks about love. Because dwellers love God. Uh, Pastor John talked about this last week. Hesed. Hesed. Say that with me. you got to spit a little bit when you say it. Chesed. That's the Hebrew word for love. You know, as much as we think of agape as the word for love in the New Testament, and that's all about sacrifice love, chesed is all about loyal love. It's the kind of love that Ruth declared to Naomi when she says to her, don't ask me to leave you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and are buried. And woe be to me if anything but death separates you and me. That's loyalty. God is not interested in having you be loyal to him and claim you love him with one hand and in turn grasp the world with the other. Because the Bible says in James 4, 4, he who would make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't hold on to the world and hold on to God with both hands and claim to be loyal, loyal to him. Loyal to him means monotheism, not polytheism. Monotheism, we are directed towards one God and to him we cling we dwell in him. So, verse 14 also says, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I'll rescue him, I'll protect him, for he acknowledges my name. A dweller acknowledges the name of God. You and I hear a lot of God talk, don't we? God talk is pretty safe for politicians. God talk is pretty safe for business people. God talk is pretty safe when you're dealing with your neighbors or people that are kind of prickly. God talk, they don't seem to get offended, but you raise the name of Jesus, watch the hair stand up on the back of their necks. Why is that? Why is it you can talk about God all day long and nobody gets offended, nobody gets even close to being offended, but the minute you start naming the name of Jesus you will get pushback because it's at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow. It's at the name of Jesus that every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is powerful. It is powerful. Powerful enough to drive out demons, powerful enough to heal the sick, powerful enough to save the soul. There's power in the name of Jesus. But God whether it's with a capital G, Elohim, or Yahweh, or whether it's with a small g, the gods of other religions. A lot of people worship God, but start narrowing it down to Jesus, 
and you'll start dividing them like the Red Sea. And then prayer. Verse 15. It says, He will call on me and I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble and deliver and honor him. Prayer is a big deal. To be able to pray and call upon God. He may not always answer the way you want him to, but he's hearing you. He's hearing you. He hears dwellers. And if you're a dweller, one of the great privileges of a dweller is to be able to pray and know that your prayer is heard in the courts of heaven. How great is that? Thank you. <laughs> Has God been trustable for you? Are you at home in God? Are you feeling like, I love God with a chesed love? I acknowledge him. I pray to him. I'm loyal to him. I'm not trying to hold on to the world with one hand and find all my security in the world and then also have God as kind of my backup plan. God is there for you in the crisis and he will protect you. Well, from what does God protect us? Take a look at verses 3 through 10. Let me read them. It says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. You'll only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. We'll stop there. From what does God protect us? Well, he protects us, first of all, from external enemies, like those found in verse 3. The fowler's snare. What's a fowler's snare? Well, back in that day, they didn't have shotguns. How do you take down birds? Well, what you do is you, you get a net, and you suspend a net, and then you put <laughs> food down. The bird comes to eat the food. You drop the net on him. You got a bird. That's a snare. A snare is a net. And if you're a fowler, fowler snare, there are those that are netting birds. And that's how you get a bird. The fowler snare, it is a trap set for you. Set for you from an external source. Someone who is your enemy has laid a trap for you. God will protect you from it. God will protect you from it. Deadly pestilence. What is that? Sickness? Sickness, amazing. Some of you moms and, and dads with young children and they go off to school and they bring all kinds of bugs home and you kind of wonder, how do you keep from being sick? <laughs> the protection of the Lord <laughs> is preserving you in those times. How does God protect us? 
Well, it says from verse 4, He'll cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Well, that's a couple of interesting terms. God is faithful. He's faithful to dwellers. And he will protect dwellers. He will protect them. He will protect them with, uh, like it is, a shield or a rampart. What's a rampart? A rampart's typically a wall built around a city. That's your rampart. But in this context, most of the people commenting on it think it's armor, body armor. God will be your body armor. God will be your shield to deflect the arrows of the enemy. And God will be your body armor to protect those that are in close with the sword. God will be your shield and rampart. He'll also protect you from internal enemies. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. You'll not fear the terror of night, the arrow that flies by day. Fear. Fear is a big internal enemy, isn't it? Afraid of things. Afraid of people. Afraid of situations. Can be night terrors like it talks about here. The terror of night. Seems like night is a terrible time. A time when bad stuff happens. Night terrors. And sickness. And then day terrors. Arrows that fly and plagues that strike. And fear. Fear that comes from those. 7 through 10 talks about unbelief. Protection from unbelief. A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. It won't come near you. You'll only see or observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Reminds me a little bit of King Hezekiah. Remember good King Hezekiah? Good King Hezekiah is in Jerusalem, and he gets word that Sennacherib, who's the king of the Assyrians, is coming to take him and take over Jerusalem and conquer it. Sennacherib's at a town called Lachish. And he sends his commander of his army, and he says to Hezekiah, give up now and become our slaves, and we won't destroy you. Because after all, what god of other cities has my king not conquered? And those gods couldn't protect them don't think that your God will protect you. Hmm, poking at God again. Nobody responded because Hezekiah had said, don't answer. Don't answer. And then Sennacherib himself comes with 185,000 Assyrian troops, presents a written letter of surrender to Hezekiah. Hezekiah takes it, spreads it out in the temple, and he says, God, look what they're writing about you. They're saying you're no different than any other god. They took them down, and they're going to conquer us because our god is weak and helpless and can't protect us. Oh, God, what do we do? The, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, 
hey, relax, I got this. You just stand still and watch the power of the Lord. And so Hezekiah goes back, doesn't say a word. That night, the angel of death goes through the Assyrian camp and kills 185,000 Assyrians. They go out the next morning, dead bodies everywhere. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come near you. It won't come near you. Has God protected you from death and spared your life? Has God protected you from financial ruin or a destructive relationship or an abusive spouse or a hateful boss from a ravaging disease? Most of us have known the protective hand of God in times of desperation. We scarcely even recognize all that God protects us from. God protects us from a myriad of things because he loves us. He loves us. How does God protect us? 11 to 13. 11 to 13 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You'll trample on the lion and the cobra. You'll trample, you'll trample the great lion and the serpent. How does God protect us? One of the ways God protects you and me is guardian angels. And you thought guardian angels were just for little children. Believe me, a lot of you, knowing what you've been through, have guardian angels that have spared you and protected you in all your ways. It means all of your life. Guardian angels. And he actively protects us. Verse 12. He actively protects us. It's interesting, this, these two verses were quoted by Satan, weren't they? When Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, Satan came to him and quoted these verses that God will assign his angels to guard you in all your ways lest you slip and bruise your foot against a stone. They'll lift you up in their hands. What he doesn't mention, because Satan is a liar and one who misquotes scripture, he misses verse 13. Take a look at verse 13 again. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, trample the great lion and the serpent. He didn't quote that part of the verse, did he? He didn't quote that verse. There's a good reason why he didn't quote that verse. Because it says... The one whom God protects, the dweller, will have victory over predators. And Satan is a spiritual predator. So are his demons. They long to see you not only fail, but die. If they could kill you and take a Christian out, one less one to worry about, one less one to witness for Jesus, one less one to tithe, one less one to be in church, one less one to be a parent, and raise a Christian heritage. If he can take you out, that's his goal. So God assigns angels. Angels are real. They're sent by God with the assignment, Hebrews says, of ministering to you and me. 
God assigns angels to us. Did you know you have a guardian angel? Did you know that you have somebody that is watching over you and guarding you and protecting you? Yeah. Yeah. Most of you have angel stories. I found that in the past when I've asked about people who have had encounters with angels. Many, many saints have had encounters with angels. Last little bit before we pick up the rest of our story in the Titanic, although I suspect you know where this is going, the story of the Titanic. What are the benefits of God's protection? That's verses 15 and 16. I just want to look at those couple of verses. It says, he will call on me, I'll answer him, I'll be with him in trouble, I'll deliver him and honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. Notice the shift in the speaker. It's now God's speaking. It's God's assessment of dwellers. Dwellers. He's going to do at least three things for them. He's going to honor them. Honor them. God will honor dwellers and protect them. Because honoring them means to exalt them, make them big, make them great. God will honor you and make you great if you really are a dweller. And love him with all your heart, with chesed love. With long life, verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him. God will sustain you. God will keep you around. God loves you. And he wants to keep you around. So he's going to give you long life. That's his estimation of long life. May not be yours, but it's his estimation of what long life is. I think I'm having a long life. I'm 71, turned 72 this year. I've outlived both my grandfathers. I think I'm doing pretty good. But we'll find out what God says long life is. It may be tomorrow. It may be 20 years from now. Verse 16, not only will he sustain us with long life and satisfy us with that, he will show us his salvation, that God will save you. I want to finish up the story of the Titanic. So they take off in a ship that the New York papers said, or the, the, the London papers said, even God couldn't sink the Titanic. Then they shove off from Southampton with 2,240 passengers and crew. On the 10th of April, pretty much four days of uneventful sailing. People are enjoying themselves. The faithful cry goes out at 11.30 on the night of the 14th. Iceberg! Dead ahead! Captain Edmund Smith orders reverse the rudders. They got three huge propellers in the back of the Titanic. He orders to reverse those engines and steer hard to the starboard side, the right side, so we can miss this thing. Probably would have done better if they'd hit it. But they thought they, they've got to get away from this this iceberg, what they didn't realize, and maybe they just didn't take it into account, about a quarter of an iceberg is visible. Three quarters of it are below the surface. And so they got away from it. They missed it, grazed it. Ice chunks came onto the main deck from the iceberg. 
What they didn't see was below the line, below the water line, how it had ripped a 300-foot gash through the hole. That's the length of a football field. It was ripped through the hull of the Titanic on the port side. Watertight compartments pushed the button. They didn't work all that well. Water kept spilling over as the, the boat listed and the watertight compartments didn't come all the way to the ceiling. They only went part way up and so one compartment filled another, kind of like your ice cube trays. Remember the old ice cube trays? Yeah, you fill up one, it goes to the next one, it goes to the next one, it goes to the next Well, that's what's happening to these watertight compartments and the boat is starting to list. 11.30 at night, they encountered the iceberg. Bruce Ismay, who was one of the one of the owners of the White Star Line, together with Thomas Andrews, who was the designer of the Titanic, went down below at 11.30 to see what the damage was. It was catastrophic. Andrews said to Ismay, we've got about an hour and a half before she sinks. But in God's great providence, she didn't sink for three hours. The distress call went to the Carpathia, who was way south, and put it on full steam and headed north to the distressed Titanic. In the meantime, lifeboats are being lowered, and people are in a panic as they put on life vests and warm clothing, try to get their children organized, piling into the lifeboats, no real lifeboat drills back in those days. Those of you that have been on cruise, on cruises, you know you have to have a lifeboat drill. No lifeboat drill, so people are being arbitrarily put into lifeboats. Lifeboats typically were holding anywhere from 70 to 80 people, maximum. Some of them were being let down with 25 to 30 in them. So you got a lot of lifeboats that are only half full that are being lowered down. Women and children first. Men stayed behind, unless they're abject cowards and put on wigs and dresses and hopped in. And so off they went into the icy Atlantic. And the problem was they only had half full lifeboats and the Carpathia was a long ways away. Over 1,535 people drowned in the Titanic disaster. Carpathia plucked them out of the waters as best they could, plucked up those in lifeboats, plucked up any that were alive, holding on to pieces of wood. 705 people were rescued. When the news got back to New York City where relatives and loved ones were waiting. Shock and amazement because you can't sink the Titanic. Oh yes you can. Oh yes you can. New York newspapers trying to scoop one another had plastered large newsprint on the front of their windows with three columns. One column said souls lost and the names of all of those that were lost as best they could determine. Second column, souls saved. The 705. 
and then uncertain. Not sure. Not sure the fate of those folks. And so people are huddled around the newspaper offices looking at the papers to see which column were their loved ones in. And you can imagine the rejoicing of those who saw their loved one go from uncertain into soul-saved column. Or those that were in the soul's lost column, they thought they were lost, but no, they're found and they're in the soul's saved column. Is it well with your soul? If you were to die tonight, maybe before you pillow your head, which column would you be in? The uncertain column? You don't have to be uncertain. God says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You don't have to be in the uncertain column. You can be in the soul's saved column. And what about you if you're in the soul's lost column? You're in the soul's lost column. Why? Why? God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus is your lifeboat. Get in the boat, man. Get in the boat. Jesus came for you, and he is your lifeboat. Get in the boat. And what about those of you that are in the soul's saved column? What about you? Can I just say to you one exhortation? Rescue the perishing. They're all around you, perishing, dying. Pull them into the lifeboat. That's what Molly Brown did. The unsinkable Molly Brown went back. She was the only lifeboat that did. Went back and was pulling in those that were still gasping for air, those that hadn't submitted to hypothermia. And she pulled them into the lifeboat with her. Hers was one of the only ones completely full. Pull them into the lifeboat if you're saved. Pull them in. They're, they're perishing. Oh, they're good-looking people. But they're perishing nonetheless. Well, we're going to pray. And uh, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. We don't often do that. But if you're in the uncertain column, just slip your hand up. I don't want to embarrass you. But while we pray, I'll give you a chance to respond. Just slip your hand up and put it back down again. If you're in the soul's lost column, and you know it, slip your hand up and put it back down again. I'll see it. God will see it, more importantly. And if you're in the soul's saved column, by all means, raise your hand and let us know. Hold on, I haven't prayed yet. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father God, I just ask that you would make us a congregation of not only souls that are saved, but we're rescuing the perishing. We're all about pulling them out of the icy waters and the grip of death into the lifeboat of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning 
your head bowed, you say, I'm not certain. I think I'm in the uncertain column. I'm just not sure that I'm in the lifeboat. Can I see your hand? Are any of you in that condition? Maybe you're in the soul's loss column. And you'd say, I know if I died tonight, I wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I want to, but I don't. Is anybody like that? Just raise your hand and put it down. I won't embarrass you. And finally, if you're in the soul saved column and you're saved and you know it, say amen. And I see your hands too. If you know you're saved, amen. Amen. Good to know which column you're in. Let me finish my prayer. Father God, I pray that you would go before us Help us to be a, a congregation that is eagerly, willingly rescuing the perishing, pulling them into the lifeboat of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.